I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. On a tour of Hawks where they pass the ancient field. Heard Hill to Christ Church, beating all the Beatles. From Blake's grave to the works of Wren. With Bentley and some Bentley and a sonic tour of sin. His grand work, it won't be top. It's too far along. Just a few more stops left until John moves on. Our next stop is a return to Europe, where we'll cover two of the longest-standing Masonic conspiracy theories, as well as a lesser-known one that did more to stoke Catholic anti-Masonic fervor than anything since Abbé Baruel. First, let's class the story up a bit. We return to H. Paul Jeffers' Freemasons Inside the World's Most Secret Society, which is at its best when delving into the many and varied oddball conspiracy theories that have accrued to Masonic lore. For example, Mozart. <laughs> the olds may recognize that iconic laugh from Tom Hulse's giggly, frenetic rendition of perhaps humanity's greatest musical genius in the film version of Peter Schaeffer's play Amadeus. It tells the story of the composer's brief life through the perspective of a real-life professional rival. Antonio Salieri. In F. Murray Abraham's brilliant portrayal, Salieri is consumed with jealousy for the frivolous wastrel Mozart, whom God has blessed with the talent denied to the pious Salieri himself. But of course, what concerns us here is the connection between the historical Mozart and Freemasonry. Wolfi was indeed a Mason, though by the time he was initiated in 1785 at the age of 29, he was already world famous as perhaps the greatest musical genius the world has ever known. For example, as Jeffers records, his first major opera, Mitridate Re di Ponto, was presented in Milan when he was, wait, this can't be right, 14? That information is correct, though definitely mind-blowing. Shall we read Jessert's ninth grade poetry at this juncture for comparison? Sorry, just don't have the time. So Mozart had been famous for most of his life before becoming a Mason, but joining doesn't appear to have been just another networking opportunity. Mozart instead took the craft at least somewhat seriously. Jeffers notes that some biographers think a ceremonial piece he wrote two years before joining was specifically designed to play for precisely the amount of time required to walk from the door of the lodge to the master's position, indicating he was familiar with the group and its rituals before applying for membership. He also composed Masonic funeral music for the interment of two brother Masons, and didn't earn a commission on the work, even though commissions were his primary source of income. But the thrust of the Masonic part of his biography has to do with his composition of the opera The Magic Flute and the mysteries surrounding Mozart's death. The story takes us to 1791, when the new Holy Roman Emperor was soon to be crowned. This would be Leopold II, brother of the deceased Joseph II. 
Joseph had proved very tolerant of masonry throughout the empire, including in Mozart's adoptive home of Vienna. Leopold, acceding to the throne amid the tumult of the French Revolution and the fear it had struck in the heart of nobility throughout Europe, appeared poised to be far less sympathetic. Per Jeffers, Mozart's frequent librettist and fellow mason suggested that they create an opera that would serve as subtle propaganda for Masonic values, seeking to influence the coming administration as well as public opinion in favor of the craft. We're not going into the full plot of the magic flute, but many interpretations hold it as a joyful celebration of Enlightenment values. Regardless, it became one of Mozart's most beloved works upon its debut in 1790. Unfortunately, this performance would mark the beginning of the maestro's decline. At the astonishingly young age of 35, he would die in December of the next year of a fever. Or did he? According to a theory that those of you who have seen the play or film Amadeus will be familiar with, the aforementioned rival Antonio Salieri either deliberately wrecked Mozart's reputation, career, and eventually health through manipulation, or just outright poisoned him out of sheer jealousy. Please note that Amadeus has a far richer, more poignant narrative than the hack summary he just reeled off. But as Jeffers points out, another culprit has been fingered for the crime, the Freemasons. In this version of the story, the Masons were angry that Wolfie had made his portrayal of the villain of the piece, Queen of the Night, too sympathetic. Or did he? Quite. Some even went so far as to suggest Mozart had inserted an anti-Masonic counter-narrative beneath the main story. Wait, you're serious? They think some Masons murdered fellow Mason Mozart because they suspected his clearly pro-Masonic opera wasn't Masonic enough? Well, this conspiracy theory goes further, suggesting the composer's murder was part of a multi-pronged plot involving the assassinations of the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Sweden as a coordinated strike against other presumed enemies of Masonry. Who the fuck came up with this shit? That's where this gets even more interesting, quoting Jeffers. This fantastic plot originated 70 years later, in 1861, in the imagination of Georg Friedrich Daumer, a researcher of antiquities, a religious fanatic, and an anti-Semite. And seven decades after that, his work came to the attention of Nazi general Erich Ludendorff and his bride, a sort of raving fascist conspiracy-uncovering Macmillan and wife. 44-year-old reference. Who used Doomer's conjectures to declare that, quote, the Jew was the secret that Masonic secret societies were covering up, and that the whole point of Masonry was the destruction of the German people so that Jews could live happily ever after. This bullshit went through a couple of other evolutions, as did the Salieri as murderous rival theory, until the question of Mozart's death was finally settled by a panel of physicians and Mozart scholars in 2000 who determined he died of rheumatic fever. Masonic rheumatic fever. No, just the regular kind. Next, to murder. Specifically, the Jack the Ripper killings. Remember when we insisted on telling you about the Masonic initiation of one Dr. William Gull, even though while he was a real guy, there's no record of his actually having been a Mason? Well, here's where that pays off. For those of you who haven't brushed up on your grisly Victorian-era slayings recently, here's the gist. Between August 31st and November 9th, 1888, five women were murdered in the Whitechapel section of London. This was, in and of itself, not particularly notable. That time and place was horrific to women, and especially to prostitutes, which most, if not all, of the victims were. There are two main reasons we remember these five as opposed to the many other similar murders that transpired around the same period. The first is the similarities among the attacks, which have led most investigators to connect them to a single assailant. The second is a series of messages to the police, ostensibly from the perpetrator, combined with a tabloid frenzy that surrounded the investigation, which gave history a singularly memorable name for the unknown assailant, 
as well as a mystery that's unsolved and potentially unsolvable to this day. Those messages, whatever their provenance, are incredibly creepy. There are three key ones. The first, which is largely coherent, is known as the Dear Boss letter. Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talked about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fit. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You'll soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle after the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. There's a brief one called the Saucy Jack Postcard. I was not kidding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't finish straight off. I'd not got time to get yells off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. You're a naughty one, saucy Jack. You're a haughty one, saucy Jack. When the street... And by far the most disturbing one, known as the From Hell letter. Why is that last one the most upsetting? First, because most researchers think it's by far the most likely to originate from the actual killer, as opposed to the others, which were likely sent by attention-seeking weirdos or possibly members of the press looking to create the news they could then report on. Also, the From Hell letter was accompanied by half a human kidney, preserved in wine, that may actually have come from one of the victims. Why half? Because he claims he ate the other half. With some fava beans and a nice Chianti. From hell, Mr. Lusk. Sir, of a son you have the kidney I took from one woman. Preserved it for you. The other piece, I fried and ate it. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Sign. Catch me when you can. Mr. Lusk. So these murders continue to engage the imagination, and we still don't know who did them. But of course, there have been many potential culprits suggested by a wide range of more and less credible researchers over the past 130 years. And there's one version which, though thoroughly debunked, we really want to focus on. Here again, Jeffers is our guide, but the real reason we ever heard about this thing in the first place is that it's the subject of, for our money, the greatest graphic novel ever written, From Hell, by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. More on that book in a few moments. But first, we should outline the basic theory as originally laid out by Ripper researcher Stephen Knight back in the 1970s. Knight's tale is fascinating, if almost certainly wrong. It begins with the suggestion that Queen Victoria's wastrel son, Prince Albert, called Eddie by his family, impregnated a shop girl after a brief liaison. Worse, though, he married his baby mama, which of course meant that a lower-class woman and her child would suddenly be part of the royal line of succession. Upon discovering this, Queen Victoria herself leverages a cabal of high-level Freemasons with absolute unquestioning fealty to the crown to make the whole thing go away. 
These men in turn enlist William Gull, the Queen's physician and a high-level mason. Again, no evidence that any of this happened or that Gull was even a mason. Continue. To do the dirty work, not knowing that his recent heart trouble had driven the already odd Gull into a grandiose and mason-centered insanity. He lobotomizes Prince Eddie's commoner wife, and then realizing a group of Whitechapel ladies of the night are aware of the secret and threatening to tell, kills them one by one in a series of increasingly vicious attacks that directly connect back to the violent oaths taken by Masons during their initiations, especially the Hiram Abiff death recreation we discussed earlier. What evidence does Knight offer for this story? Well, it's predicated on the testimony of one Joseph Sickert, son of Walter Sickert, an artist and friend of the young Prince Eddie before the latter's death at age 28 in 1892 of influenza. According to Joseph, his father knew the whole story and kept it secret even as the murders transpired. Okay, so we got secondhand hearsay. Well, there's more. The murder scene of Catherine Eddowes, the Ripper's third confirmed victim, included a piece of her bloody apron found next to a wall on which had been written the following message, complete with odd spelling and grammatical choices. The Jewers are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. The most important oddity in there is the word that's spelled J-U-W-E-S. This spelling, which could obviously be an erroneous rendering of Jews, pricked up the ears of many conspiracy-minded folks, both then and now, as it potentially referenced the death of Hiram Abiff mentioned earlier. Wait, how does Jewers reference the Hiram Abiff thing? Remember that the three ruffians were named Jubella, Jubello, and Jubellum? Knight explained that collectively these three were also known as the Juez, with that weird extra use spelling. More concerningly, and this is verified, the head of the Metropolitan Police immediately had the message erased, claiming he was just trying to prevent violence against the local Jewish population. Care to guess what popular secret society that dude belonged to? Rotary Club? Nah. You know. As we noted above, this story has been retold in many arenas since it was originally concocted by Knight, including in a 1976 movie called Murder by Decree. Why would radicals hire you to catch a madman? That's why indeed, food for thought. And why feed this information in such a bizarre fashion? And more important still, who killed Mickens and why? But regardless of how debunked it's been, we strongly recommend you check out writer Alan Moore and artist Eddie Campbell's version, the aforementioned graphic novel From Hell. To our mind, it stands as a testament to the unique storytelling that can only be accomplished through sequential art. It renders a tale more complex and richer than any purportedly nonfiction investigation could, with a William Gull who believes he is acting out the divine mandate of a Masonic deity called Jabulon, sacrificing women to the god of male reason, seeking to ensure continued patriarchal domination throughout the dawning 20th century. There are so many amazing moments. Gull's bizarre Masonic visions, the matter-of-fact depictions of the many degradations and fleeting joys of the lives of women in the impoverished hellscape of poverty-stricken Whitechapel, the creeping dread as Gull hunts and inevitably dispatches his targets, removing their organs and throwing their guts over their shoulders in purportedly Masonic frenzy, the growing tabloid fervor around the murders, the indifference of the populace, and the mystical narrative threads binding these killings to everything from the conception of baby Hitler to the very creation of the modern technological world. It's a visionary masterpiece, and you should absolutely read it. Also, you should absolutely never, ever watch the 2001 movie loosely and incompetently based on that masterpiece, which misses everything great about the book and is borderline unwatchable in spite of its talented cast. But for all that, and as Moore himself admits, in an afterword, the evidence for Knight's version of the Ripper case is pretty thin. Jeffers gathers the counterfactuals for us. First of all, the entire basis of Knight's story was Walter Sickert's confession to his son Joseph, detailing the Prince Eddie pregnancy and ensuing supposed royal-initiated bloodbath. 
But Joseph Sickert later retracted his tale, and other Ripper experts have noted that those parts of it that can be verified have turned out not to be true. The Masonic connection is particularly tenuous. Jeffers quotes Masonic historian Paul M. Bessel. Those who are familiar with the Masonic ritual know that the mutilations of the Ripper murder victims' bodies do not reflect any Masonic practices, rules, rituals, or ceremonies. Any seeming similarity is only slight, inaccurate, and circumstantial. For example, Bessel notes that while the Masonic don't-tell-our-secrets-or-else pledges involve the heart being removed and thrown over the left shoulder, the Ripper's victims' intestines were thrown over their right shoulders. Gross, but different. It gets worse. Bessel also confirms that the term the Jewez, spelled in that odd way in chalk on the crime scene wall, has never been used to refer to the three ruffians who killed Hiram Abiff in the story. That's just someone deciding that because each name started with J-U, that this could maybe be what the message's author meant. Probably it was written to cast blame on Jewish people, either with a murderer or some passing anti-Semite. And thus the police captain's decision to erase the message and protect Jewish citizens seems eminently reasonable in retrospect. Also, also, the identities of the three ruffians had been removed from the Ebiff ceremony in England seven decades before the murders. Though not America, where we apparently lack our Masonic initiations to feature alliterative perpetrators. Also, 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 the purported baby whose birth kicked the whole thing off would have been conceived while Prince Eddie was in Germany, not London. And there's a lot of doubt that a 72-year-old heart attack and stroke victim like Gull could have manhandled these young women in the way the Ripper clearly did. And again, this whole thing is based on a second-hand confession that has been offered, retracted, and modified numerous times. Still, check out that book. Watchman gets all the ink, but from hell is really where it's at, Ellen Moorewise. Next, we return to France, where the largely Catholic power structure continued to fulminate about the nefarious influence of the Masons for nearly a century after the Revolution. We don't know if you've noticed, but many of the societies we've covered here have ended up face-to-face with a pretty consistent enemy. The Catholic Church ends up playing the bad guy in many of these stories, whether they're rooting out ancient heresies, standing by while the Templars are destroyed, persecuting the Cathars off the face of the earth, playing the heavy in the holy blood Dan Brown priory nonsense, or keeping a wary eye on this whole Rosicrucian thing. All of which makes sense when you think about it. The church is still a huge and powerful institution to this day, in spite of the seemingly never-ending scandals that have plagued it over recent decades. But the modern church is a pale shadow of the near-omnipotent influence that the papacy and its institutions once wielded over virtually all of modern Europe and beyond. The centuries in which these various societies have emerged, flowered, and eventually faded have been the same era in which the Church has fought one long rearguard action to maintain its influence or outright control over matters both spiritual and political. And yet, for all its efforts, it has consistently lost influence, first to the emerging Protestant movement, then to the rise of secular nation-states, now to both other, more dynamic religions, Islam, Mormonism, etc., and perhaps more disturbingly for a religious organization, the growing cohort of nuns. That is, those who identify with no particular denomination or religious practice. Atheists, agnostics, and the indifferent. In other words, basically all of the European white people whose great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were all loyal Christians, mostly Catholics, whether they liked it or not. So our secret societies have been just one more headache for the church, nostalgic for its all-powerful glory days to deal with. But the Masons were a particular thorn in the side of the papacy, and their growth was one of a number of reasons why the Holy See was in turmoil in the 19th century. The church hates Freemasonry from the very beginning. 
Freemasonry has a kind of code of religious tolerance in Freemasonry in its original form. As long as you believe in a God, you can be from any religion and become a Freemason. And Freemasons, one of the reasons they refer to God as the great architect of the universe is that they don't want to pick one religious code over another. They want that to be as welcoming a vision of religiosity as possible. And to the Catholic Church of the 18th century, especially given the Freemasons' way with secrecy, which galvanizes anybody who's got suspicions about Freemason, this was heresy, if not devil worship. The church had a monopoly on truth and tolerance was heresy. Now, that church hatred of Freemasonry and suspicion of Freemasonry really comes into its own in the 19th century. I've already talked a little bit about the Abbe Barwell and the birth of the conspiracy theory centered on the Freemasons. But you have to remember that after the French Revolution, the early 19th century is a catastrophe for the Catholic Church. The very bases of the world, throne and altar, are profoundly shaken. You get industrialization, ripping people away from their traditional roots in rural communities. You get new materialistic philosophies. And it culminates, of course, for the church in 1870, when Italy, having been unified 10 years earlier, moves in and takes over what is left of the church's land. For more than a millennium, the pope had been a pope king. He had had a big swathe of land across central Italy. Now his power was restricted to Vatican City. Rome became the capital of Italy and notional power over territory in Vatican City and spiritual power. And that was disastrous for the church. It showed that the devil was at work in human affairs as was already clear in any case from the French Revolution and from the many other revolutions of the early 19th century in Italy, but also far beyond. And at that point, the conspiracy theory about the Freemasons becomes the official ideology of the Catholic Church. In 1850, a journal is founded called Civiltà Cattolica, Catholic Civilization, which is to be the mouthpiece of these conspiracy theories, edited by Jesuits, commenting on world affairs and politics, spread through churches right round the world. Civiltà Cattolica was the nearest thing to the authorized voice of the papacy on political affairs. And its official line was that everything bad about the modern world was the fault of the Freemasons. On the other hand, Freemasons are beginning to associate themselves with the cause of lay government, a state separated from religion, a state governed in the interests of the nation and the people and not legitimated directly by God and the church. So you get things like movements for civil marriage and cremation an education free of religious influence. Thus, with Masons continuing their influence and the church seeing ever more threat from those same Masons, we're all set for a culture war. And Freemasons, particularly in Catholic Europe, who have learned to see the church as an enemy, are in the forefront of what becomes a culture war. 
fought out through these political battles, but also through monuments and novels and so on. And you get culture warriors on both sides. And one of those culture warriors, very much on the lay side, was a guy called Leo Taxel, who in the 1860s and 70s is writing a whole load of scurrilous pamphlets and books about female popes and the pope's lovers and lascivious Jesuits and anti-church polemic of the most scurrilous kind. And he is excommunicated. You know, he's only in his mid-twenties and he manages to get excommunicated, which means, you know, he's on his way to hell. He's not kidding about the scurrilous titles, which included such astonishing works as 1881's The Bible for Laughs and The Secret Loves of Pius IX. You know he's going to look up the one about lascivious Jesuits, don't you? We're not discussing my private time, Unicorn. Anyway, Taxel was so operatically and publicly, and we might add profitably, anti-Catholic that he managed to get himself excommunicated from the church by the tender age of 26. As Dickey's book notes, this, quote, one-way ticket to hell only encouraged him. The book also points out that Taxel was hardly a heroic figure even for church haters, with a reputation for loose ethics and a number of claims brought against him for slander and plagiarism. Which makes what came next all the more surprising. And then suddenly, he seems to undergo a miraculous conversion. He goes to see the editors of an important Catholic journal in France and convinces them of his sincerity. He's embraced by the church. He confesses, behind the secret of confession, confesses to having committed a murder on the order of the Freemason. And he says, I want to expose to you, I know, I have seen the demonic secret, the devil-worshipping secrets, what really is going on in the Masonic lodges. I've seen the heart of the conspiracy and I can tell you all about it. And so he's very quickly granted a no-show job in Catholic Library. He gets publishing deals with Catholic publishers and publications like Civiltà Cattolica, Catholic Civilization, endorse and review his works. And he starts to publish more and more extraordinary revelations about sexual perversity and devil worship carried out by the Freemasons. He also starts to write under various pseudonyms, which a lot of people don't know about at the time. One is this Dr. Bataille, who supposedly travels the world, unearthing Masonic conspiracy everywhere. He travels in India and China. The triads are part of this demonic conspiracy. He visits the Masonic poison factory that the Masons use to make these special poisons to kill lots of people that we assumed had just had heart attacks or died of cancer, but had actually been killed by the Freemasons with poisons manufactured in these hellish laboratories deep within the rock of Gibraltar. He talks about witnessing lesbian sexual orgies carried out in special elite demonic Masonic lodges called Triangles. We should note here that his 1885 conversion and the embrace by his Catholic former enemies that accompanied it turned out to be quite lucrative for the repentant freethinker. As the book notes, Within days of his conversion, he had won the trust of numerous Parisian priests, a job in a Catholic bookshop, a deal with a Catholic publisher, a percentage of the profits from sales of his future books, and guaranteed free publicity in the Catholic press. He could now lend his pen to a sacred cause, obeying the exhortation in Humanum Genus 
to tear the mask from Freemasonry. So he's in the literary catbird seat with the enthusiastic backing of one of the most powerful institutions in the world. Clearly, the first step was an autobiography, Confessions of a Former Freethinker, which he published in 1887. The book reveals that his fall away from the warm embrace of the Mother Church was caused by his discovery at the tender age of 14 of a manual promulgated by the evil, evil Masons. Young Taxel dedicated himself to the craft and ignored his religious education, ran away from home, engaged in the sins of the flesh with criminals and ladies of the evening. You know the drill. He proved too independent-minded to stick with Freemasonry's rules, though, and quit by 1881, but only after he had learned the Masons' real, horrifying, demonic secrets. And he was going to tell his eager, pious readers every lascivious detail. Hmm. Different audience, but it sounds like he was still in the scandalous, lurid expose business. Yeah, but for the Lord, so it was okay. Having exposed so much, you would think that Taxel would have plumbed the depths of Masonic depravity. Not so. In 1892, a pseudonymous author calling himself Dr. Bataille revealed still more shocking facts about the demonic Masonic underground. People didn't believe this guy, right? I mean, who's going to listen to the arguments of some coward who won't even reveal his real name? You're a mean lady, Dana. If that is your real name. Which it's not, obviously, or it would be a shitty pseudonym. Jesus, people, keep up. Anyway, this Dr. Bataille's revelations made Taxel seem tame. It turns out that the entire religion of Hinduism was just a demonic front secretly run by British Freemasons in the Raj. But more importantly for our story, Bataille also met none other than Albert Pike, Confederate general, chronicler of the Scottish Rite, and racist asshole, who showed him a flame-belching demonic telephone shaped like a frog. Wait, what? That's what the man said. Seriously. What, you want more evidence? He also saw a crocodile with wings appear at a seance in England, whereupon it proceeded to play the piano. Come on, Jesuit. No one believes this shit, did they? Only like the whole French Catholic hierarchy, and only for like a decade plus. Oh, there were definitely questions about both Taxel's and Dr. Bataille's stories, but the in-house publications of the Mother Church supported them. And after all, they were really only an extension of the anti-Masonic conspiracy theorizing the Church had been doing for more than a century by that point. Which brings us to the moment in the story where we have to introduce Diana Vaughn, who would play a major role in future developments. Half French and half American, she was an anomaly among demonologists. At her initiation to the degree of Templar Mistress, a ceremony conducted in Paris by Sophia Sappho, she flew in the face of Palladian orthodoxy by refusing to spit on the consecrated host. Diana believed that Lucifer was in fact a good god, and that Adonai, as the paladists called the Christian deity, was a force for evil who was incapable of becoming flesh in a communion wafer. Diana's case generated furious debate in the Satanist community, but she was protected from being punished by her personal demon and fiancé, Asmodeus, who had given her a magical lion's tail that flogged anyone who spoke out against her. Well, miracle of miracles, Ms. Vaughn decided, just as Taxel had nine years earlier, to renounce her former life and return to the embrace of Mother Church. And then another turncoat comes out, who this time is a woman who talks about leading female Freemasons who've mated with demons in order to generate the Antichrist who will be born at some point early in the 1960s, and so on and so forth. And all of this gets more and more and more far-fetched. And he brings along a good slice of the Catholic Church and Catholic public opinion with him. Gradually, towards the end of a kind of decade of these revelations, people start to get suspicious. And they say, hang on, 
Has he really seen this? And eventually, Taxil says, right, I'm sick of these devil-inspired suspicions about these writings of the various Masonic confessions that have been inspired by my revelations. We're going to hold a press conference at which we will reveal her. Hitherto, she'd been kept secret. We're going to show you the truth. We're going to put it out there in public in Paris in April. And at that press conference, crowded with journalists from all over the world and from both sides of this culture war, he says, actually, it was all a hoax. I made it all up. Ha, 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 isn't that funny? Nobody thought it was particularly funny at the time. He was a pretty distasteful character. Astonishing that he'd managed to keep this up for so long and alienated so many of his former friends and put his marriage at risk and all kinds of things. So at that eventful press conference in 1897, the hoax was fully, completely, comprehensively exposed by the very people who had created it. And as you would expect, from that day forward, everyone stopped believing in the ridiculous pseudo-revelations that Vaughn, Taxel, and Bataille, i.e. Taxel writing under another name, had published during their long prank. Of course, they did no such thing. Some people within the church continued to believe what he said. They said, no, that wasn't the real Leo Taxel. That was a substitute who'd been put in by the devil, who'd actually murdered the real Leo Taxel shortly before. This determination to continue believing what is obviously, demonstrably, a bizarre conspiracist fantasy of sinister forces, drenched in the blood of innocence, writhing in orgiastic joy as they're rogered by demons and give God the finger, reminds us of one of our favorite ever topics, the artistic career of one Jack Chick. Paranoid strain digression, but it's pretty good. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Presumably, many of you who live in America may have come across the works of Mr. Chick and his ministry. He's most famous for small, oblong cartoon pamphlets with intriguing titles like Gomez is Coming, Somebody Goofed, and Where's Rabbi Waxman? In case you're wondering, Rabbi Waxman is burning in the lake of fire because he didn't accept Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Indeed. Anyway, each of these booklets tells a simple story about how somebody or other didn't do what Jack Chick's very very fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible told them to. And that's why they're in the aforementioned Lake of Fire. Or in the more hopeful ones, like the anti-evolution Big Daddy, the biology professor who until moments before had been so sure of his evolutionary worldview, accepts the easily debunked creationist nonsense spouted by a confident know-nothing student and renounces his adherence to the scientific method in favor of the advanced theory that... Magic man done it! You are aware, surely, that nobody listening to this has a complete set of Jack Chick tracks in the back of his or her dresser, right? Well, I mean... Wait, nobody? No. But I do. We all know. Because they're funny. We know you think so. Does Lady Jessard think they're funny? More like... sad? We get it. Super funny to pass around in college, but maybe a middle-aged man should have moved on? Sounds about right. Okay, all of this is hurtful, but I'm not even talking about those little tracts. Ha, I'm talking about a much more obscure thing that Jack Chick did. Oh, joy. That is, this unbelievable, literally, full-sized comic book series about the supposedly real-life adventures of a former Catholic priest turned evangelical anti-Catholic activist, Alberto Rivera. 
After abjuring his Catholic faith, Alberto began telling his story to anti-Catholic Protestant evangelical groups in the U.S. Younger listeners might not know this, but for a long, long time, well into Jesuit's teen years, the ultra-conservatives among the American evangelicals who now make common cause with Catholics in conservative U.S. politics, the parents of the same Christians who were overjoyed at a conservative majority Supreme Court that includes six Catholics, were absolutely convinced that the Catholic Church was at the root of all spiritual evil in the world. No, it's true. Anti-Catholicism was a really important part of the most conservative John Bircher anti-communist, anti-immigrant part of the evangelical Christian movement, at least up to the 1990s. That's the moment when conservative Catholics started being accepted into the broader conservative fold. The original idea was that the Whore of Babylon and the Antichrist and all of that stuff that's talked about in the Book of Revelation is really about the Catholic Church, which perverted the original, pure, early church from the time of Christ turned it into a powerful tool of Satan, and ruled the Christian world until the real truth was rediscovered by true Christians in the wake of Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation. This idea is to this day popular in parts of the very rural U.S. South, where anti-Catholic Jack Chick tracts are an integral part of the decor of every Waffle House restroom. So the point is, supposedly former priest Alberto Rivera found an incredibly receptive audience in Jack Chick and his ministry, which to this day hasn't gotten the memo about Catholics being okay now. In the late 70s, Chick and Rivera began publishing comic books based on the former Jesuit's self-attested backstory of becoming a priest in order to suss out the horrible truths about the Catholic Church. Very similar to the tale of Dr. Pataille, isn't it? That's not the only similarity to Leo Taxel's ludicrous accusations about the Masons from a century before. Rivera's stories involved secret training facilities where dedicated Catholic agents would pose as attractive young evangelicals only to infiltrate God's true church and pervert it from within, seducing righteously anti-Catholic pastors to the satanic practice of ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism, a popular pan-denominational movement in certain Christian circles in the 70s, Men playing nice with other Christian denominations, instead of declaring that everyone who's not in your slice of Christianity is on a one-way trip to hell. Turns out, that's just playing into the devil's hands. But the best part of the first Alberto comic is when you find out that the top levels of Jesuit leadership in the church are all secretly Masons. Naturally, all of this confused the young Alberto Rivera, who as a good Catholic had been taught to hate and fear the Masons church policy since the formation of the craft. He insists at this point that I remind you of Jesuit's maxim of conspiracy underpinnings, trademark pending, and that once again, it's been proven. Alberto's discoveries about the satanic underpinnings of the church led him to speak out against it, resulting in his capture and extensive torture by the church higher-ups who couldn't have his insider information about their depravities getting out to the public. Again, this is Rivera's version of events. We'll get to questions of their veracity in a moment. But at the last minute, Rivera turns his soul over to Protestant Jesus, who instantly heals him and empowers him to remove himself from an iron lung with no assistance, which we're pretty sure is unlikely. Anyway, he escapes, rescues his nun sister from a convent, survives Jesuit assassination attempts, including with nerve gas, and reveals all kinds of other secrets, like that nuns and priests have orgies that result in pregnancies, and then the nuns sacrifice the babies to the Virgin Mary and bury their bodies in mass graves. Obviously. And President Lincoln was secretly assassinated by the Jesuits. No doubt. And the church was behind the Jonestown Massacre. Sure. Why not? 
Oh, and they created Islam. Oh, come the fuck on. Yeah. In issue three of the Alberto series, you find out that the church needed to motivate 7th century Arabs to kick out Jews and true non-Catholic Christians in the Holy Land so that the Pope and his demonic Catholic hordes could control Jerusalem. So they created an Arab messiah, namely Mohammed, to do their dirty work. Funny that this world-shattering expose of interfaith historical revisionism appeared not in scholarly publications, but in a comic book. Isn't it? You would think Rivera's revelation that the Vatican secretly started World Wars I and II as part of their long-term strategy to punish the Jews for keeping the Pope from controlling Jerusalem 1,400 years earlier would have made headlines, too. Oh, and the Jesuits also masterminded the Russian Revolution. I'm going to hypothesize that these allegations aren't backed up by a mountain of incontrovertible evidence? I mean, no, in the sense that there's no evidence at all. And also, way back in 1981, two different American Christian evangelical publications ran exposés of the many, many, many questionable claims Rivera had made about his background, experiences, etc. Wait, even other evangelical Christians didn't buy it? So who the fuck would believe this? First, it's still not dumber than QAnon, and we know plenty of people believe that shit. Second, Chick Publications conveniently wrote out an FAQ addressing the haters who didn't buy this story, which we'll quote here, responding to the allegation that Rivera's conspiracy theory is extreme and paranoid. Dana, do the honors. Quote, There are only two ways that history can be explained. The accidental theory and the conspiratorial theory. Okay, we might be able to quibble with the completeness of those two options, but... That's surprisingly accurate, in the sense that the accidental theory is the only one that makes sense and fits the data. How do they go on to describe the accidental theory? All events, such as world depressions, revolutions, wars, and political plots, are the results of pure chance? Such a view is as ridiculous as belief in evolution. My god, they just don't make them like the dearly departed Jack Chick anymore. Pour one out, Straniacs. We're going to leave this story at this point because on some future episode, we're going to dive deep into the full, completely amazing world of Jack Chick's unique conspiracy o -rama. But we wanted to point out the irony that Rivera, Chick, and those who like them see the evil hand of the church behind all terrible world events kind of cribbed their own paranoid playbook from the church itself, thanks to its centuries-long policy of believing and disseminating ridiculous anti-Masonic allegations like those of Barrowell and Taxel. Very long digression. Over. Phew. Where were we? Oh yeah, there's one more little point we wanted to make about the legacy of Leo Taxel and how his Baroque pastiche of lies impacted the historical legacy of someone we discussed previously. Many of the elements of Leo Taxel's cynical fantasies actually survive to this day in conspiracy thinking. Do you remember I mentioned Albert Pike? the sort of white supremacist guru of the Scottish right, Taxil said, ah, yes, the real head of the demonic anti-church that is Freemasonry, if you like, the demonic equivalent of the Pope is Albert Pike. He is the real bad guy. He is the devil worshipper in chief. And he made Charleston the world HQ of demonic Freemasonry. He'd made it up. But of course, if you look up Albert Pike these days, you will see lots of conspiracy theorists saying, aha, he was a devil worshipper. Look at this, look at that. Just recently during the Black Lives Matter protest, his statue in Washington, D.C. was one of the ones torn down. He was the only Confederate general with a public statue in the nation's capital. 
and it was torn down, even though he was there because of his contribution to Freemasonry rather than because of his distinctly unimpressive record as a military man. But when it was torn down, look at the Twitter discussion about that. There's a lot of people saying, ah, good riddance, because he was a devil worshipper. That Taxel story, insane as it sounds and comic as it sounds, belongs, of course, in that climate of culture war in the 19th century. Elements of it still live on today amid our own culture wars. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 